0: Would you stand please as Bill comes this morning to read to us from God's Word.
1: The people of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, Jehoram's youngest son, king in his place, since the raiders who came with the Arabs into the camp had killed all the older sons. So Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem one year. His mother's name was Athaliah, a granddaughter of Amri. He too followed the ways of the house of Ahab for his mother encouraged him to act wickedly. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done. For after his father's death, they became his advisors to his undoing. This is the word of the Lord from Second Chronicles 22,
0: 1-4. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It was back in 2016 and 2017 that I was learning a lot about the conflicts that were going on in Syria and the refugee crisis that it was creating. There was something stirring in my heart about those people and and specifically the children who were casualties and what might it look like for me, what might it look like for our church to serve people who are coming out of that environment and i i remember trying to figure out with that conflict in syria trying to keep straight who was fighting whom and why and so back in those days a friend shared a chart with me that really helped clarify it uh, exactly who who was fighting who and what it it looked like it just seems right doesn't it (laughs) Uh, and, and in some ways, I feel like this reading through the Kings and Chronicles, and maybe you do too. Hopefully, you're reading along with me. It is really hard to keep straight. Who are we talking about? Who was married to whom? Who was the father? Who was the son? Why do some of these folks have the same name? Who was the king? Who was a priest? Who was a prophet? And it is hard to navigate through this section of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, Second Chronicles, and to keep everything straight. And I can promise you, if you feel that way, so do I. And you are in good company, because if you had come into my study this week, you would have seen lots of books open in, in different parts of the room, as I myself... Am trying to keep straight, okay, who's where? What are we talking about? Are we in Israel? Are we in Judah? And there was one particular passage where I had four commentaries open, and each of them had a different interpretation of what was happening in the story. So these are not easy narratives and stories to navigate. And and again, if you're reading along with us, I, I hope that you're finding throughout, though it is difficult. Some things where the Lord would say to you, this matters, and this is consistent. This speaks to you, your life, to the times in which we're living. And that's been my goal all along since planning this series and and beginning it several months ago. But if you're one of those that's, that's having a hard time navigating, and as we've said from the beginning, most Christians know their New Testament better than their Old Testament. And most that struggle with the Old Testament would say that the period of the kings of Israel and Judah, I know the least about that. Well, we're trying to, to, to make this a little bit clearer. And, and to do that, I've given you some resources. They're referenced in your channel, and they're available on our website. That if you're, as you're reading along, you, you might even be able to open them on your device while we're, we're here in worship. Only this, don't go checking scores or anything else like that. But you can pull these up, and they're intended to help you navigate through. Who are we talking about? Are we in Israel? Are we in Judah? Who were the kings? How long did they reign? And also, I love this one. Who were the prophets who who also were speaking at this time, and God was speaking through them into the lives of his people? Now, I, I would love to have printed this one out for you. That's just a little piece of it. It's intended for your mobile device if we printed you a copy It would be the size of this banner right over here to the side So we would love to have printed it for you, but really these are best served as digital content Again, there's a link in your channel There's also even a more detailed chart that gives you scripture references talks about the kings talks about the prophets If I printed this one for you, you'd need a magnifying glass But it is really hopefully some some helpful tools to use and, and and follow along as you're reading and perhaps online as we go through just to try to make our ways through these scriptures and understand uh, exactly what's happening to the best that we can so we come back to the text this morning and i'm just going to warn you here up front we've got some work to do before we get to the text that we just read we need to fill in the gaps of what's happened in between king jehoshaphat of judah who we saw last week and where we are now with his grandson ahaziah who who we read about just a moment ago though asa and jehoshaphat did what was right in the eyes of the lord they weren't perfect but they're remembered as godly kings the 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 son that followed jehoshaphat which was king jehoram of judah and then his son ahaziah who was jehoshaphat's grandson. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Not only did they fail to remove the idols that the people were worshiping, but they built them back up. Not only did they fail to to pull the people away from worshiping gods like Baal and goddesses like Asherah, those kings were worshiping those gods and goddesses too. And so we find ourselves in a really dark period in both Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, when idols are rampant. And it seems like in both places the existing generation has forgotten everything about God that was imparted to them by those who had come before. And so before we get to the main text today, again, we need to go catch up on some things. And my goal this morning, as we try to make our, our way and make sense through all these texts, is what it's been all along. Let's find some common themes throughout these stories, but also throughout this period In Israel's history and say, how does this speak to God's people for all time? And so here's the first consistent theme that I see in what we're going to talk about this morning. And it starts with a word that in many cases in our culture has become offensive to people. It's a word that that sounds maybe too religious for some, too churchy, but it's a word that the Bible uses an awful lot, more than 500 times. We find this word describing the way human beings, every single one of us, either has broken God's commands or has failed to do what is right. And it's the word sin. Sin is contagious, and its consequences are hard to shake. This is a consistent theme running through the Kings and Chronicles. It's a consistent theme if you go back To the book of judges if you go back to the first five books the torah If you go forward into the period of captivity and get into the new testament or just look in the mirror Sin Is very prevalent and since the first human being sinned against god Sin has been spreading like a wildfire one generation after another To the point that we can rightly say as the bible tells us All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god If that word hits you funny, maybe this will make it better. I, too, struggle with sin. I, too, am a sinner and have fallen short of the glory of God. And I know that that my sin affects me personally. There's no question. My sin has been the most consistent thing in my own life that has kept me from being in a healthy place in my relationship with God and with others. But I also know this. My sin, because it's contagious and its consequences are hard to shake, also affects other people. When I have sin in my life and when I have had sin in my life, the blast radius goes wider, larger than just me because I live in community with others. I live in community with my family. I live in community with my church family. And as a person of God who who says, Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of my life, I have a responsibility to represent him in all the places that he sends me. So there's no question that, question that sin affects me, it affects us personally. And we like that kind of language as evangelicals and Baptists, right? We like to talk about personal sin, personal repentance, personal relationship with God, and that's good because all of that must be first and foremost personal But the the majority context of, of the Bible, the majority context of these stories is not just one person living on an island somewhere. It's all happening in community. And many times what we read in our English translations, we read the word you in these stories, but in many others in the Bible. It's not you singular, but it's you plural. It's God saying to his people, you all have sin in the camp. You all are not where you're supposed to be. You all are in danger of facing the consequences as a community for the unfaithfulness and for the sin and idolatry that exists in your midst. We live in community as the church. So what I do affects you. And what you do affects me. And when one of us fails to live out faithfully what Christ has called us to do and who he has called us to be, it hurts all of our effectiveness. It hurts our witness. It hurts our unity. It hurts our overall health as God's people. And I've told you as we've gone throughout this series that I, I'm not going to equate Israel and the church. They're not exactly the same thing. But the most important thing we as the church have in common with the Hebrew people, the Israelites is that we are God's covenant people and just as the nation of Israel according to the first covenants were God's covenant people living in that kind of relationship that said you are our God and we are your people and just as they were commissioned and called to represent the God of all creation the one true living God to all the nations around them we as the church are new covenant people and because of the blood of christ we all no matter where we come from and no matter what we've done as the new covenant people we all come under the same family name and we're all given the same title we are children of god it doesn't matter if you're jew or gentile doesn't matter if you're male or female doesn't matter if you're white black brown old young rich poor it doesn't matter in christ we are one we are his covenant people and in the covenant community sin is still contagious and its consequences are hard to shake and what i do affects you and vice versa So as we come back to the Kings and Chronicles, again, this is a time in the history of the divided kingdom when sin and idolatry are rampant throughout both Israel and Judah. And we have some prophets speaking into this situation. And the two most common prophets we'll see in this period have a similar-sounding name, Elijah and Elisha. Many of us are very familiar with Elijah We think about him as a prophet who often spoke the words that God gave him. We love to think about Elijah on Mount Carmel when that showdown happened between the prophets of Baal and God himself, and God brought fire down from heaven. So we talked about a couple weeks ago. We love those stories of Elijah. But did you know, and hopefully if you've been reading along, you do know that Elijah wrote a letter that is actually in the Bible. We think mostly of letters being in the New Testament, but the prophet Elijah wrote a letter and it's found in the chapter right before what we just read in 2nd Chronicles 21. This letter was written to Jehoram, the king of Judah, who was the son of Jehoshaphat. So last week Jehoshaphat, godly king, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but his son who followed did not. And here's what Elijah, the prophet, wrote most likely right before he was delivered up to heaven with a chariot of fire. This is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says, Elijah wrote. You have not followed the ways of your father Jehoshaphat or Asa, king of Judah, but instead you have followed the ways of the kings up north, the kings of Israel. And you have led Judah and the people of Jerusalem to prostitute themselves just as the house of Ahab did. You've also murdered your own brothers, members of your own family, men who were better than you. So now the Lord is about to strike your people, your sons, your wives, and everything that is yours with a heavy blow. You yourself will be very ill with a lingering disease of the bowels until the disease causes your bowels to come out. You're welcome for reading that last verse as a part of the story Sin is contagious Its consequences are hard to shake And if you continue on in that chapter 2nd chronicles 21 jehoram indeed does develop this awful bowel disease He is miserable in pain Not only that but jehoram's whole life begins to crumble around him His kingdom is falling apart. His family is breaking apart And yet even in the midst of his physical, emotional, and spiritual pain, he does not call on the Lord, ever. And in the midst of his sinfulness, he dies a miserable death. And not only is he not given a funeral, even as the king, he's not buried with his father and grandfather in the hall of the kings. Because there was no respect, nothing left of his kingdom, just as God had warned And what happened in that generation of Jehoram that followed Jehoshaphat? What happened into the next one with Ahaziah, which we'll come back to in a moment? All of it is a reminder that, and here's our second consistent theme, one way or another, God will remove sin and idolatry from among his people. We might think for a generation or two or three that we're getting away with it. That we can continue to break God's commands. We can continue to call ourselves his people, but still worship our own American idols. We might think that, that we're, we're so strong and so great and so rich that, that ultimately those consequences will never catch up with us. But look throughout the history of Scripture and look throughout the history of the church, and you will see that God does not let this stuff go on forever unchecked. One way or another, he will remove sin and idolatry from among his people. But listen, it doesn't always have to be the hard way that so many choose throughout these scriptures that we read. There is a better way that God removes sin and idolatry from among his people that that I would think all of us would prefer far more than what we find as the second way. The first way, the better way, is simply that His people, who are are overcome with sin and idolatry, would turn to Him in repentance. That's the easiest and best way that God removes sin and idolatry from among His people. When His people confess their sin, they turn away from it, and they say, God, we are no longer choosing our idols and the dead things of this world over you. There may not be a more hopeful verse in all the Bible than 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God will remove the sin and idolatry from among his people, but isn't this the way we should see it happen? not because we face the consequences not because of of a harsh judgment or everything around us crumbling but because we turn to him as Lord and Savior and as our one true king and in removing our sin and idolatry he does it by purifying us from all unrighteousness. This offer stood for God's people in the days of the kings of Israel and Judah. They may have had to use some more complicated means to ask forgiveness But this was God's consistent offer relationship with his people and it still stands today That if we look in our hearts and lives or in our communities of faith and we say We too have sin and we too have our idols That we would turn to him confess And believe that he is faithful and he is just And he will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's one way this can happen The other way that God will remove sin and idolatry from among his people is by bringing judgment. And by allowing his people to face the consequences that we bring on ourselves through our disobedience. This happens in both the northern kingdom of Israel and as we've said, it's happening now in this period in the southern kingdom of Judah. Just as in the, the south, Elijah was speaking to to the king Jehoram and to the people around Jerusalem. So in the north God was using the other prophet with the similar name Elisha to speak to them. So I'm, I'm going to put the chart back up again just so we're kind of you know, on the same page. So we we're talking about with Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Ahaziah from our text today, the southern kingdom of Judah. On the right side are the kings of the north, the kings of Israel. And in this same period uh, where Elijah comes into play, we're going to see a man named Jehu for a while become the king of the northern kingdom. And there are several things about Jehu that stand out. Number one, he's not in the bloodline of the previous kings. So to this point, the thrones are being passed down through the bloodline. In Judah, it's through David's line. In the the northern kingdom, it's, it's through Jeroboam's line. But, but Jehu is not in those bloodlines. Instead, he was a commander in the army of Ahab. So, like I said, it's hard work today. So stretch if you need to, all right? We've got a lot of names, and we've got a lot more coming. Remember Ahab from a couple weeks ago. You will not find a more evil king in these stories, but even more than that, you will not find a more evil queen than Jezebel, his wife. Jehu was a commander in Ahab's army. He was an idolater. He was executing some of those evil plans that Ahab had. But in this case, rather than through the bloodline, God calls Jehu old-school style. He sends the prophet, just like he'd done with Samuel and Saul and David. The prophet comes to anoint Jehu as king and give him authority if he will follow God's command to start his own bloodline and his own dynasty. And so in 2 Kings chapter 9, we, we don't have time to cover the whole story of Jehu, but I at least have to read this first introduction to you, just so you get a picture of who Jehu of the north was and how God was executing his judgment during this period. So 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, The prophet Elisha summoned a man from his own company of prophets, and he said to him, Tuck your cloak into your belt, take this flask of olive oil with you, and go to Ramoth-Gilead. And when you get there, look for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Go to him, get him away from his companions, and take him into an inner room. Then take the flask. And pour the oil on his head and declare, "This is what the Lord says: I anoint you king over Israel." Then open the door and run; don't delay. This is this is the kind of reputation that Jehu, the commander of Ahab's army, has. But Jehu responds; he accepts the task given to him by the prophet whom Elisha had sent, and he becomes the king. And, and God used Jehu to completely obliterate the worship of Baal in the northern kingdom. All of those kings of the north before had been worshiping Baal and Asherah. But Jehu is used to destroy all of Ahab's line. He also kills Ahab's evil son and Jezebel. And just as God had, had said, she is devoured by dogs. It's incredible what happens in these stories. Then Jehu goes into Baal's temple and destroyed all of the prophets and the servants of Baal, and he destroyed Baal's sacred stone. And I kid you not, the Bible says this, they went into Baal's sacred place and they turned it into a latrine. This is exactly what the Bible says happened. I don't care what you watch on Netflix, it'll never be as entertaining as these stories in 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Go back and read this stuff. But Jehu is executing this judgment. Again, one way or another, God will remove sin and idols from among his people, and the people of the north are still his people. And Jehu is executing the judgment. And if you're reading through these stories for the first time, and you've watched one northern king after another be called evil, 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 you might start thinking, finally we have a king who's going to be good. Finally, a king of the northern kingdom of Israel will be called one who does right in the eyes of the Lord. But Jehu, even though he destroyed all of the worship of Baal as God had commanded him, he never removed the idols from his own heart. And he never gave his heart fully to God. He got rid of the, the idols to Baal, but he kept worshiping Other idols like the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. And so, even in the end, after all the good that Jehu was used for, the Bible says he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is a period, as I've said, where whether you're in the northern kingdom of Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah, the news is not good. And the people are not being faithful. And as we come now to our text from today, which is where we're going to end. We're back in judah We're back in the southern kingdom And the bloodline of david is still in place Now we come from jehoshaphat who was a good king Through jehoram who was evil To ahaziah Who reigned for a whopping one year as a 22 year old when he became the king The center of the story of ahaziah is not really about him But it's about the one who's pulling the strings behind the scenes and that's his mother, Athaliah. She already, when she was the queen married to Jehoram, was pulling the strings and, and leading people to evil. Now she's not the queen, she's the queen mother. And look at what the Bible says about Ahaziah. He too followed the ways of Ahab. And his mother encouraged him to act wickedly. And the last verse we read today, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord as... The house of ahab had done and after his father's death the advisors of ahab became his own and i love the way the text tells us to his own undoing if you think about ahaziah everyone speaking into his life was telling him to do the wrong thing every single voice speaking into ahaziah's life was telling him to do evil to worship idols and to disregard the word that God had given to his ancestors, to his forefathers. And I think about the times in which we're living. Again, we're finding these consistent themes. And it leads to a fair question who's speaking into your life? Whose life are you speaking into? Who are you listening to most of all? I shared a couple weeks ago a survey with you that I thought was really helpful and interesting. Apparently this is the season for surveys because I came across another one just released by LifeWay, which is our our denomination's research arm that I I thought was probably pretty accurate. LifeWay went to specifically evangelical Christians, Baptists like us, and they asked them, what do you look at every day? Or who do you listen to every day? And they gave them a, a list of choices. And here's what came up among those choices most said facebook every day the next said youtube and then the bible comes in well below half of of that of of facebook and you know in every survey there's there's typically what's called the halo effect where people actually answer the questions how they wish the answers would be or how they attend them intend them to be instead of the reality and so if the halo effect is really at play here it's it's probably worse and and if there's any question or doubt about it, I, I bet you couldn't find a pastor who would not agree with this statement that in the times in which we live, this is among the most challenging things that we face, pastoring a church. It is so hard with all of the messaging that is constantly bombarding our church members, our church family, our own children, it is so hard to help people navigate what is true, what is right. And we know that there are many people who are on Facebook and things like that for hours a day And they almost never are digging deep into the scripture To let the word of God speak into their life Who is speaking into your life? And if you're constantly being surrounded by some of these others you're you're likely being fed by people who profit off of misinformation and yet we, we still live in a culture where some of those people are not to be questioned. And if we hold anybody up to that level where we say whatever they say is right, whatever they say, we have to do it without question, they too are an idol. We're holding them up just like an idol. And a vicious cycle will emerge because we'll, we'll only start surrounding ourselves with voices that reinforce what we already think, which then makes us think that our own views are exclusive and always right and beyond question. And none of us as followers of Christ ever can get to that place where we're no longer teachable, where we're no longer humble enough to be molded by the Lord himself. So this was happening. Again, one way or another, God will remove sin and idolatry from among his people. Athaliah, Ahab's advisors, they demanded exclusive authority in Ahasiah's life, and he gave it to them. And when things get this bad, God's people need some different voices. They need new leaders who will speak his truth again. And it gives me hope when I look at the younger generation that's coming behind my generation, that what I'm going to give us as our last consistent theme here is still true, just as it was true throughout Scripture. That after one evil generation and the next and the next God at some point consistently raises up leaders and generations who do walk in his ways and who proclaim his glory. We'll see that as we go forward. There's some dark times here, but some bright spots are coming in the stories of the kings. We can look throughout our own history as the church and say we've also had some dark seasons, but we've seen some faithful generations that God has raised up who are people who follow his ways they share his heart. They proclaim his glory. In the very next scene, in 2 Chronicles 22, right after Ahaziah died, by the way, he was mortally wounded by Jehu in battle. Right after he died, guess who takes over? It's the queen mother. Athaliah installs herself as the ruler Not of the northern kingdom of Israel, but of Judah in Jerusalem, where God had promised David and Solomon, you will never fail to have a ruler on the throne of Judah. Athaliah sets herself up as the ruler, and what does she do? She goes on a killing spree of her own. She kills her own sons. She kills every heir from the line of David, so that no one could legitimately challenge her. Her rulership. So she thought. But behind the scenes, God was honoring the promise he made to David and the promise he made to Solomon. And there was a baby, Joash, protected by his aunt Jehoshaba and her husband Jehoiada. Jehoiada is really the hero of these next few chapters. He's not a king, he's a priest in the temple of the Lord. And he's godly and faithful They protect the baby They hide the baby But good old queen mother, Athaliah She gets to sit on the throne For almost seven years I go back to the chart for a minute The left side, the kings of Judah Notice Athaliah gets the little designation She's the only one with the symbol She's a female She sets herself up as the ruler And she continues to lead the people To do evil but in the very next chapter, God again consistently raises up new leaders and new generations who will walk in his ways and proclaim his glory. Jehoiada the priest finally takes his shot. He stages a coup against Athaliah. And there's little Joash, who was a baby when Athaliah went on her killing spree. Now he's seven years old, the ripe old age of seven. And, and Jehoiada says, to the priests and the Levites Surround little Joash with swords We're going to run everybody out And we're taking back this throne For the line of David And for God The God of Judah So they successfully stage a coup Athaliah is killed Joash is installed He's crowned as king At seven years old And then the people of Judah Went to the temple of Baal And they tore it down. They smashed the altars and the idols. They killed the priest of Baal in front of the altars. And Jehoiada restored worship in God's temple. As long as Jehoiada was alive, Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. A new generation rose up. The idols were removed. Worship of God was restored. And for a season, things cleared up and faithfulness and God's glory was on display. We've got a lot more to cover in these stories in the weeks to come. But again, coming back to this consistent theme, God raises up leaders and generations who walk in his ways and proclaim his glory. And I believe that, that he will continue to do this until Christ comes again. And as I look around the world right now, I see that there are many faithful followers of Christ in this generation who have committed their lives to following His ways and proclaiming His glory. The question for us is, will we be among them? Are we among them now? And will, will we continue to be among them no matter what happens? When I look at my grandparents' generation, they weren't perfect, but I see my grandparents' generation as one who, time and again, when we, when we remember those from that generation, they were faithful to the church They were faithful to their family. They were faithful to their country, faithful to their job. They were really an incredible generation. No offense to anybody else in the room, myself included, but all the generations who have followed since haven't quite lived up. But I look at this generation coming behind us, my own kids, our young adults, our college students, our high schoolers, our older children— I look at everything that's happened just this summer among that group in our church, and I have hope. I have hope that that all is not lost and that God can raise up through this generation a group who will say, no more. No more sin and idolatry in our churches. No more of, of, of buying into all of this nonsense that's constantly being thrown at us. We are going to follow His ways and proclaim His glory. I don't know about you, but I am praying for that generation. I hope you are too. But how much more fruitful can they be if in this church, let's just say in this church, they see people their parents' age, their grandparents' age, their great-grandparents' age, who are following Christ closely, who are are holding up Christ-like examples as those that we should follow, that they see in us that our, our life matches our message and that we care about them. We want them to see faithfulness. We want to proclaim God's glory for them. As we prepare for our time of invitation. The invitation goes out today in two simple ways. First, if, if you feel lost or you feel empty today. This is a call for you to step out of darkness and into the light. Remember that hopeful verse from 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. That has happened in my life and it can happen in yours. Today, if you would turn all the way to Jesus Christ and let him remove all of that mess and all of that darkness from your heart and your life. The second part of the invitation is for those of us who have done that, we've We've confessed, we've repented. We would say we're followers of Christ. Maybe today you are called to take a new step in following Christ more closely and maybe even to untangle yourself from some of those things, some of those voices that are not leading you to be more like Christ. They're not leading you to produce the fruit of the Spirit, but instead the rotten fruit that comes from this culture. Maybe today you would would untangle yourself I think about this as an example. Every time I'm, I'm weeding out my, our plants and our flowers, every time I prune out those things that are dead, those branches and those leaves, it's amazing how quickly life returns and those plants grow and are healthy. Maybe you need to just untangle, prune some of that garbage out of your life. Wherever you are this morning, here's our last word. May each of us this day make this fresh commitment. Lord Jesus, I will walk in your ways and I will proclaim your glory.